Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. I sometimes say these days that I just followed my nose. But over the years, got a really good sense of smell, which (laughs) smells to follow and which ones to (laughs) definitely ignore. I'm trying to show how interaction actually works. And also sometimes the damage people are doing in conversations that just get never seen, never exposed, because no one's really looking at recordings of actual conversations. What we're doing all the time is trying to make it easy for people to say yes, rather than have to deal with them saying no. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 47 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Elizabeth Stokoe. Hi, Liz. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you. Before we begin, I wanted to thank all the followers of the Reframe and Reset Your Career LinkedIn page, which recently passed 500 followers. Thank you for your continued support of the podcast and YouTube channel. For any new listeners out there, please feel free to connect on LinkedIn and do subscribe, like, and share if you enjoy the content. Now back to the show. Liz is currently Professor of Social Interaction at Loughborough University in the UK, but will join the London School of Economics Department of Psychological and Behavioural Sciences in spring 2023. She conducts conversation analytic research to understand how talk works, from first dates to medical communication, and from sales encounters to hostage negotiation. She has worked as an industry fellow at SAS companies Typeform and at Deployed. In addition to academic publishing, she is passionate about science communication and has given talks at TED and many other prestigious organizations. Her book, Talk, The Science of Conversation, was published in 2018, and she has co-authored a book on crisis talk. Her research and biography were featured on BBC Radio 4's The Life Scientific. During the COVID pandemic, she participated in a behavioural science subgroup of the UK government's Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, SAGE, and is a member of Independent SAGE Behaviour Group. She is a Wired Innovation Fellow and in 2021 was awarded Honorary Fellowship of the British Psychological Society. Welcome, Liz. Thanks. So um, I'm a big fan of the arts. Is there a performer song, book or film which you'd like to share? Um, I'm currently rereading Agatha Christie. Oh, cool. Um, I think it's the winter. I like sort of Agatha Christie adaptations on the telly at this time of year. And so, yeah, I'm currently just working my way back through the ones that I've got in my house. Okay. Any any particular ones that sort of uh, uh, stand out for you? I just reread Evil Under the Sun and I'd forgotten that it's a bit different to the film. Oh, cool. Okay, very good. No, I, I used to read a lot of Agatha Christie when I was young. So. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah they're, they're great, great books. And, yeah. and, and actually, uh, you don't really know who is going to be the, the villain. And it's yeah. the most unexpected person. Yeah, she was really good at always, pull, you know, pulling the wool over your eyes as a reader. And then, yeah, even though you knew to expect the unexpected, it was always unexpected. So I'm um, going back to the start, Liz. I saw that you studied physics at A level, like I did, and actually I think we did the same uh, A levels, maths, physics, and chemistry. Um, I didn't like writing essays. I don't know about you, but I, I saw that you ended up taking psychology as well um, at night school. Uh, so what 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 happened there? Yeah, I mean it's it's just true to say that I wasn't really great at physics once we got to to A level, um, and I was pretty sure that I would need another. A different, a different subject if I was going to get to university. So um, I did psychology in the year. Um, it would have been the upper sixth year when I was at school. Um, so I did that at the, the local sixth form college. And it was the time when Cracker was on the television and, you know, everyone was interested in forensic psychology. And I probably just was a part of that, you know, new wave of, of lots of enthusiastic psychology students. Um, and so I decided that's what I was going to do for my degree. Cool. Okay. Well, obviously it turned out well because um, you went on to study psychology at university. And how how did you find that? 
I went to what was then Preston Poly. Um, it's now University of Central Lancashire. Um, I, I think the degree was fine. Um, it didn't cover any of the things that I ended up doing for my PhD, I suppose, because it was a fairly traditional psychology degree. Um, and in those days, most of them were. So it wasn't really till later that I found my way to the things that I do now. You wouldn't really do what I do now on a psychology degree at all. Um, but nevertheless, it gave me that that grounding in psychology, which is important in in all, all ways that you don't even realise later on in your career. You end up realising that you're still a psychology trained person in context later in life, um, even if you're working in a very interdisciplinary way. Yeah, and, and you're a member of the British Psychological Society as well. So obviously they um, hold you in high regard. Yeah, the, the BPS has been really supportive of my career, actually, in various ways. So I appreciate them. Fantastic. So so what happened? So you did the psychology and how did that lead on to, you know, obviously you did your PhD uh, and you know, how did the conversation analysis start? So after I finished my degree, I I had two possible career thoughts in mind. One of them was to go and work in book publishing, which is probably a bit of a stereotypical thing for anyone who's a bookworm. And I always was a bookworm. I actually went in my summer holidays and went to work, worked in this bookshop in, in Hay on Wye, which is this little book town people might have heard of um, on the Welsh border. Um, so I was really into books and literature and reading. And I just thought, well, maybe publishing would be a way to go. Um, and I did a week's, um, I suppose you would call it a placement now, you know, just just one of, but a self-propelled kind of, could I come and just be in, be in a publisher's for, for a week? And it, that was amazing. Um, and at the same time, because I had now done my psychology degree and was interested in forensic psychology, I actually had a place on a master's to do forensic psychology, but there was no funding. So I was also then just quite randomly applying for anything in The Guardian on Tuesdays, because that was when you got all the academic jobs, for anything with psychology in it. And somehow, by some fluke, without really 100% knowing what a PhD even was, I ended up with a PhD studentship at what was then Nen College and became Northampton University. Um, And they were funding PhD students because they wanted to graduate PhD students as part of their own journey towards becoming a full university. And, and then basically the woman who supervised my PhD, who I owe a lot to, uh, Dr. Eunice Fisher, she must have seen something in me in my interview. I don't know what it was. Um, and she was doing her own research. Was a, She was in cognitive psychology, but she was interested in language and interaction and learning. And somehow at some point along that way, um, between her and another external supervisor, they gave me this book called Lectures in Conversation by Harvey Sachs. And um, in a way... The rest, as they say, is history. I just found the thing that was going to be the thing for me. But but I really love that that sort of part of your story because I think for a lot of people, um, in many of the listeners and other people out there, they're not really sure about their path and how to get there. And when they see, you know, say your journey, that you you didn't have a particular prescribed way of getting there. But obviously, um, you know, you're you're very good and uh, you know, working really hard and trying to figure out your own path. And then you see these different opportunities, and then also people uh, see something in you. And I think that's a, an interesting theme. A lot of my guests that they're not really sure where they're going, but they're taking action and they're trying to take a step forward. I mean, mm-hmm. what what do you think, Liz, about your journey? Yeah, I think that sums it up quite well. I I sometimes say these days that I just followed my nose but over the years got a really good sense of smell you know which which smell to follow and which ones to definitely ignore so yeah I, I feel like I've been lucky in some of the individual the key individuals that I've met so my PhD supervisor for instance because as I say you know she she must have seen something in me we both like crime fiction maybe that would work <laughs> Um, and we actually we actually shared a birthday as well, so maybe maybe that helped. Um, and we're, we're actually she's in her in her eighties now, and we're still very much in contact. And I we, we talk regularly, so she's a wonderful woman. Um, and she actually took me on as a PhD student right at the end of her career, so I was her one and only PhD student. Oh wow! Um, and so that was quite special. But it really was a journey of sort of mutual discovery. She wasn't a conversation analyst, but she was connected into. Um, some other collaborations where there were some conversation analysts um, and particularly someone called Professor Derek Edwards who actually was here at Loughborough he retired I'm losing track of time 10 years ago maybe Um, and he became my second supervisor um, because of the status of what was then 
Nen College because they they needed like another university to kind of oversee my super, my, my my PhD. He he was that supervisor and he was doing conversation analysis in psychology. So that was the sort of connection. But it was all a bit of an accident in a way, but a really happy one. And then you find your groove and then I guess you just yeah follow your nose once you found the thing that you like the smell of. Fantastic. And is that how you ended up at Loughborough and now subsequently going on to the LSE? It, 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 it was through conversation analysis? Yeah. So after I got my PhD in 1997, I went to the University of Derby um, and I was a lecturer. I think my formal title was lecturer in social psychology there for three years. And then I went to what was University College Worcester and is now, I guess, University of Worcester or Worcester University. Right. And actually, I was living, I, I actually got married quite young um, to a bookseller in Hale, Hawaii. <laughs> where I'd been. So there's, there's lots of these connections. And Worcester was the nearest university, actually, to, to, to Hale, Hawaii. So I commuted a bit from there. Um, and then, my, you know, my dream job, in a way, was to, to come to Loughborough Department of Social Sciences, because this was where psychologists were doing and using conversation analysis to expand how psychologists understood language and social interaction. So when I came in 2002, there was a, you know, a, a world leading group here um, and I was just thrilled and honoured to just turn up and start working here. It was amazing. And, and I think that's really interesting because if you're surrounded by really good people, um, you're naturally, I mean, obviously you're highly talented, but, you know, I think whoever you are, if you can find a really good group of people and, you know, even just, um, it's like, you know, the, the knowledge just, you know, diffuses across doesn't it through osmosis and you yeah. just pick up so much just by hanging around great people um and then how, how did you end up uh, or how are you end, ending up at the London School of, of Economics um so I've been at Loughborough for 20 years so I, I yeah. came here in 2002 hmm. I guess you know Loughborough has been an amazing academic home and could continue to be my academic home in, in many ways I think in in the 20 years that I've been here for the first 10 you know, I was a lecturer, we, we had a social psychology degree, um, and then I gradually got promoted without really, again, really thinking, I don't think when I joined in 2002, I, I even occurred to me to, you know, to be a senior lecturer or a reader or a professor. But but anyway, in, in that first 10 years, I was doing those things and got grants and all the things and published and all the things that academics do. And then from 2013, um, my department became part of a school. And that meant there was some restructuring. And what that meant was that um, there were there were new positions like associate deans um, and I became associate dean for research. And I did that role across the school of what was then social, what was then social, political and geographical sciences. Now we're social sciences and humanities. Um, so I did that role for five years until 2018. And then I went for on a year's sort of secondment to a, a software as a service startup called Typeform. Oh, wow. um, if you haven't heard of Typeform, they're 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 a, they're a bit like SurveyMonkey, but their USP is conversationality. Um, so I went there um, for a year, and then when I came back to Loughborough from 2019 to 2021, um, I was what was called Associate Pro Vice Chancellor for this big research assessment exercise that universities in the UK all go through every seven-ish years. So so that was a, a really senior role at the university. And since that role finished, um, I've been at another startup um, on a secondment. And I think it's just, you sort of think, well, a lot's happened. Lots of things have come to a natural end. And I guess I'm at an age where you think I either, you know, stick or twist. Um, what am I going to do for the rest of my working life? Um, maybe now's a good time to move. Cool. Well, obviously, it's all worked out very well. I mean, you're a professor, which is amazing. And, and it's funny, I, I seem to have done very well with the uh, LSE professors. I had uh, Dr. Grace Lorden, uh, Constant Locke as well, who I, I think you may have come across or be coming across when you move up to the LSE. So, yeah, great to have another future LSE uh, teaching faculty person on, on the show. But actually, going back to your uh, spe speciality, so what is conversation analysis and how did you end up specializing in that, that area? Uh, and, and why is it so important? So conversation analysis is the study of real talk collected. Uh, the data is recordings. So sometimes single cases, sometimes tens, hundreds or even thousands of recordings of, of real interactions. So not simulations, not role plays. We don't 
interview people about their interactions. We don't ask them on a survey. Um, we look at real talk in the wild as it happens. We transcribe in lots of fine grain detail. To, and then we and then the aim is to kind of understand the complete encounter from the moment it starts all the way through to the end. And over 50 years of research, conversation analysts have shown that we are pushed and pulled around by language. Uh, by that, I don't just mean words. I mean everything that we we use as a resource to interact with others. So, of course, our, our gestures, our gaze, um, our intonation, all of those things that we are bringing to bear to do things in interaction. So we look at all of those things and how people are yeah, pushed and pulled around by them, by you know, what happens in the, at the opening of the encounter, how does that sort of manifest in a trajectory all the way through to the end. Um, and conversation analysts are working, it's a discipline that started in sociology, but now it's rather interdisciplinary, um, linguistics, communication, psychology, in most, mo you know, many of the world's languages, there are people working. And this, together, there's a sort of cumulative 50-year body of research to show how communication, human communication works. And the reason that I think it's really important to do this kind of work and also talk about it um, outside of academia is because communication is one of those really difficult topics in a way. Everyone's interested and everyone thinks they know a lot about it because everyone's been talking their whole lives and has all of their anecdata to go on um, to, to, and when you say, you know, what, how did that conversation go and what did you say and all those things. But actually, it's this this mysterious thing happens when you ask people about how human communication works. Somehow the actuality of real interaction seems to just slide away into the ether. And people will tell you things that they have got from, I don't know, the media, pop psychology, um, their memories, you know, just, just things that sound right about how people talk to each other. And what that means is that there's lots of myths, lots of very, very solid sounding, very sensible sounding facts about communication that just aren't when you actually study communication, I suppose I would say properly. And, 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 and on the one, so on the one hand, you want to sort of bust myths. And on the other hand, you want to be able to show things that might be quite egregiously, egregious problems and things that are happening so, so to give you an example, it's probably quite important to know what happened inside, let's say something like a police interview with a suspect. How are you going to find out what happens in a police interview with a suspect? You could interview a police officer and you could interview a suspect. Or you could look at the actual interaction. And then you could look at, OK, does this interview seem to align with what we assume is going on by the letter of the law? And, you know, in, in almost any setting you can think of, there's the things that we imagine are happening and then there's what's actually happening. And sometimes what's actually happening is much better than what you might imagine from, you know, how this conversation is meant to run, run off. And sometimes there are real problems. So someone once described someone once described conversational analysis to me and they, they thought they were being kind of critical. They thought this was a winning takedown. Oh, isn't it just a method in search of a problem? <laughs> and I think that's a great description, actually, of, of at least a lot of the work that I do, I'm trying to show how interaction actually works. And also the sometimes the damage people are doing in conversations that just get never, never seen, never exposed, because no one's really looking at recordings of actual conversations. No, I, I just love that explanation. I think there's so many sort of interesting points you uh, bring up there, because I think sometimes you have a perception of how things have gone. But actually, say, you know, after we've, we've done this interview and we both have a particular, hopefully it's, it's gone well, but then you watch the, watch the tape afterwards. And yeah. actually it's a lot better than, than, you, than yeah. you thought, well, yeah. hopefully. Um, and, but, but also in, in other interactions, you think, oh my gosh, that didn't go so well. But if you could have a third party watching in on it, and sometimes our perceptions of what we think is going on, isn't, it doesn't really reflect reality. So I just love, love that whole thing. And, and also, I, I think you were talking about this whole idea of uh, the structure and, and conversation, the conversation racetrack, mm -hmm. and there's a structure to conversations. Um, would you like to maybe talk a little bit, a bit about that, Liz? Yeah, so I, because I do a lot of this talking to, you know, not, not just not academics, but not conversation analysts, but people who, you know, we all like to 
earwig on conversations and in a way I'm a professional you know, eavesdropper because that that's that's sort of what I'm doing so so when when you're trying to co- convey what it is that you do I started to get people to think about every interaction has a landscape to it an architecture like a racetrack so you start at the beginning with your recipient or recipients and then you sort of progress along this racetrack and there will be things the the race the racetrack is structured so you know what's coming up but depending on how you navigate and maneuver and approach that particular bit of the racetrack you might get through it really smoothly or you might have a crash um and and that's you know that's a nice analogy for thinking about social interaction the structures there so we can see people let's say in a you know a doctor's appointment or a telephone call to your gp reception or even you know at the supermarket checkout we kind of know what the structure is and some people, both customers and salespeople or cashiers or both receptionists and patients, will just navigate that smoothly all the way through um, to, to the end, um, through all of the, you know, who you are and what you want and what, what can be done and all those things. And sometimes they are a bit of a car crash and we might say, God, that conversation was a car crash. So the analogy seems to work to get people to understand, on the one hand, the structure and the potentially systematic nature of what seems very messy are our conversations but on the other hand realize that if there's a if there's a, a key task along the way in this conversation you can approach it in a way that makes it really smooth you can anticipate it you can see the potential hurdles you can overcome them or crash straight into them um so that's why i started talking about the conversational racetrack no and i think that's a great way of looking at it because i think sort of uh before any sort of big conversation or even little conversations there is something uh, you you hopefully want to get out of the conversation on on both sides maybe you're asking somebody to do something and you've got to put it in a particular way um so i think if you understand where you're trying to get to and then think about these small steps that you have to take to navigate it uh, and be mindful and also mindful of the words that you're using. Because actually going on to myth busting, people talk about uh, the percentage of communication, which is nonverbal. So it's always as if saying, well, the words I'm using are completely irrelevant. And you're, yeah. you know, but I suppose there's some elements of truth to that, but obviously, you know, what do you think of this? Yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing that people will really amplify in their own when they're talking about talk the role of body language and how important it is without really thinking about what we mean by body language so there's a couple of ways of thinking about it from a conversation analyst point of view Um, the first thing is that I I think we probably try not to even split up the sort of modalities of interaction because depending on the type of conversation you're having and how you're having it, you just bring to bear your words, your intonation, your gestures, your gaze, uh, writing or signing or anything that you anything that you're going to be using to interact. And and through that you build act, we, actions. You do things with talk. So you do a request, you do an offer, you do a greeting, you do advice. So well, and and you might use lots of different resources to do that depending on what it is you want, for example, or you know, if, if if your partner walks past your your screen now, you can just do that with and then, you know, if, if this is a long camera, you can just kind of like gesture the cup sign, which means, you know, get me a cup of tea. Um, but you can't do that to everybody at all times. So we understand that we use different, we can build our actions differently depending on how important the thing is and how entitled we are to ask for it and how obliged that person is and how easy it is. And all those things are kind of shaping what we do. So it's, you know, on the one hand, like you could almost throw the whole, is it is it verbal or nonverbal? Just throw it away and just look at what people are actually doing. But on the other hand, um, this idea that communication is 93% nonverbal comes from originally um, studies conducted by Albert Morabian. And it's one of those very simple, compelling communication facts, in inverted commas, that that many people will, if you Google it, you'll see many pie charts and bar charts and all the rest of it on people's slides. But what people might not know is that Morabian spent at least some time in his career trying to stop people from misusing his research, um, which didn't really find the things that people want to claim it found. And... um, and he's actually very critical. He said he, in an interview with another another um, academic many years later, he talks about self-styled um, 
you know, sort of psychological experts and consultants, uh, communication consultants who use this statistic with no expertise. Um, and we've probably all recognised those sorts of uh, communication trainers. <laughs> but but the thing that he in this interview with a, uh, an academic called Max Atkinson, they it's just very easy to make the, the thing fall over, because if this is a podcast, then if communication was 93 percent nonverbal, then we'd only need to actually produce words for 70% of the time and it would exactly. still be fine. So, so, you know, how come podcasts are so popular? How come we can talk in the dark? Yes. You know, how come I've just spent some time in Barcelona and I can't get by 93% of the time just with my gestures, <laughs> my non-verbals, you know, I, I, I need that. And, and the other thing that I think is, is a really compelling way to think about this is what about services like the Samaritans or, you know, helplines, charities that do a lot of work on the phone, amazing work on the phone. Those kinds of conversations don't only work 7% of the time. They, they work all of the time. So as soon as you start to think about it, you think, yeah, there's this, you know, whatever this statistic is and this fact that I've believed for ages and sounds really compelling and I'll trot it out. It, it just doesn't really work for how people interact with each other. But we do love a compelling fact and statistic to, to you know, hang or sense of we know something off, I suppose. I mean, may, maybe do you think it's that whole uh, sort of first impressions thing that, you know, when you meet somebody for the first time, you know, even before they've opened their mouth, maybe, you know, are they suitably attired? Do they look friendly? Um, and then, you know, if you don't make a good first impression, then however wonderful your words are. Um, do you think it comes from that maybe do you, that people have? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just speculating here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm a psychologist by background, and, and we we know that we're full of prejudices and biases, and all of those things, of course, are um, shaping every moment of every encounter that we have. So, yeah, but I suppose it depends whether you would actually then put something like what someone's wearing. I mean, it is a part of one's identity, and it's conveying mm -hmm. things about you. Um, but whether it's your whether you would whether that would fit into what Moravian was talking about as non-verbal communication, I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So I think we, I think what your question is a good one because it just makes us think we need to be much more precise about what we mean when we're measuring and counting and asserting things um, than just sort of you know ball statistics. And that one's funny and maybe it doesn't do anybody any damage, but maybe there are other things that we think we know about communication that actually do damage down the line as well. Oh, cool. And and I like this point where you were talking about this whole idea of how are you at the beginning of, of a sentence. Now, clearly, this isn't uh, uh, an invitation for somebody to really say oh, how they feel. But if it's not there, then that implies something, uh, yeah. which I find really interesting. I mean, what, what's your take on that, Liz? Yeah. So the idea that um, how are you is just pointless filler is, again, very common if you Google, you know, how are you? Then you'll be bombarded with articles telling you that it's pointless filler talk. It doesn't really mean anything. But when you listen to real conversations like me and other conversation analysts do, you'll see that lots of conversations start that way. Hi, how are you doing? Fine, how are you? Uh, or, you know, some, something that does that kind of opening to an interaction. And every one of those components is already data such that if they are not there, they will convey something about the kind of interaction you're in. So I've got a nice example where a mum phones home from work. She phones her daughter. You can the daughter answers the phone. She sounds a bit half asleep, and um, she's and and I think she's a, the, so so she says hi. The mum the mum says hi, sweetie. It's only me. And the the daughter's going hi. And before anything else can happen, the mum jump jumps into the conversation to stop any any other things happening and just says, "Did you get in and manage to unlock the alarm?" And so there, of course, you, you know, if we said to somebody, how do you convey urgency in a conversation with someone, you know, um, well, at least one answer to that question is you don't do the how are yous. You 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 deal with the important business first. And actually, then you might say, oh, you're all right, by the way. OK, yeah, fine. See you later. And then you say, you're right. You might actually do that little check later on. So we, we see that these how are yous are are telling us something about the kind of interaction that we're about to have. And if they're not present, you know, there's another very well-known call in my field where people phone up and they, they they start out, Debbie, Shelley, what do you mean? And they don't do any greetings, no how are you, nothing. And 
it doesn't take much to see they're going to have a massive argument now because they've dispensed with all of those things. So if you want to say to someone, you know, how are you going to convey that I want to have an argument? Well, you don't say, how are you? How are you? You, you don't do that. You, you do something else. You, you, you delete those, those bits and pieces. So it's some sort of information in a way that you can pick up that things may Absolutely. not be going that well. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and I love, I, I watched your TED talk uh, in Bermuda and I loved Dana and Gordon. Um, and obviously, unfortunately, uh, for our listeners, we can't go through that now. But um, yeah, please do watch uh, Liz's TED Talk because it, it is just hilarious. Um, or maybe you could just give a little summary of what was going on there. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. so Gordon, um, Dana's phoning Gordon and he picks the phone up and says hello and it's it's old analog so he doesn't there's no caller id but it doesn't it's not really the point so he says hello and and then there's this little there's this silence um it's a it might sound short it's seven tenths of a second but actually in our world that's enough to know that there's, there's this is not going to be whatever's coming next and whoever's on the phone it's not going to be a hi how are you fine how are you it's going and, to be and this is boyfriend and girlfriend isn't it yeah exactly yeah. and then dana says hello where have you been all morning <laughs> Um, and then what's nice is, of course, you know, Gordon's got choices. Um, so he can say, what do you mean where have I been all morning? Or we're, we're not married. I don't have to tell account for every minute of my day. Or he could answer the question or he could say, oh, I'm really sorry. He's been trying to get hold of me. Sorry. Um, but instead, what he does is sort of recruit the racetrack. So what belongs at the start of a call? And actually, this is this is an effective thing to do for people who you know, somebody who sort of almost misgreets you and they they don't say hello or something nice at the start. They're like, like, kind of instantly aggressive. And, and actually what he does is say, hello, <laughs> because that's the kind of thing that belongs at the start of a, a conversation. And it just temporarily, you know, takes the winds, yeah. the wind and the heat out of the sequence, not for long and not forever <laughs> in this particular case. But, but um, you can see how it's very easy to get immediately hooked into the momentum created by somebody else's turn in the conversation and if you can resist that sometimes it's very hard to do actually but, um, but if you can do it it will it's one way to not have an argument you know i just love that and i would say uh, to the listeners do have a look at liz's ted talk because it especially that bit is hilarious and what what has happened to dana and gordon i, I don't know people do ask this it, it's not my material but um i think by the end of the call they they, they went on they weren't on a great page from what i can remember Fantastic. And I think that's a quite interesting point about silence, because I think you were saying that um, you know, when you do have those silences, those are quite um, telling, aren't they? Because normally you'd have you know, not not a long gap between sort of you know, the back and forth. But when yeah. you do have those gaps, that is quite a telling sign. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's it. Um, the silence, we tend to, I think, imagine that between just kind of ordinarily moving turns at talk, there's longer gaps than there actually are. So, you know, one of the, the founding papers in conversation analysis talks about no gap, no overlap. So we're actually really good at precision timing in multi-party conversation the next term. We know when it's going to be our chance to get in and, and it's like split seconds, you know, 10th to 200 milliseconds maybe. So the idea that we have to think about what we say before we say it and of course sometimes we really are thinking about what we say before we say it but most of the time we're actually preparing our next turn you know well before you're the, the person you're talking to is finished and you can see that because you know people couldn't could literally couldn't have a conversation if they had to do some kind of cognitive processing before they took a turn and this isn't to say that people aren't listening to each other we're just actually amazing at seeing where what someone is saying is going and it's because we can sort of start to project the action that they're doing so we can see that then what they're doing slowly is well sometimes we don't sometimes we're like where is this going and then you think oh okay they were going to invite me to x and then you suddenly realize it was an invitation um and then you as soon as you then you're just waiting for the end of the invitation and then if you want to accept the invitation what will happen is that will come quite quickly um but if you want to turn down the invitation then what probably will happen is a delay <laughs> and that delay that silence will tell the person who is just issued the invitation that the person I've invited is probably going to turn me down and this is why you get things like so what are you doing Saturday 
all Sunday. <laughs> and and the person saying Saturday can see, can sense really quickly that it, they're not going to say yes to Saturday. So you immediately give them options to, and, and actually what we're doing all the time is trying to make it easy for people to say yes, rather than have to deal with them saying no. Um, and there's all sorts of kind of conversation design things that we're doing right, you know, live in the moment uh, without really being aware um, and that's why we're not very good at reflecting, actually, and remembering conversation, because we just don't remember at the level of granularity that we actually produce talk. No, it's funny when you say that, because, I mean, clearly, if the other person does want to um, you know, interact with you, whatever they're doing on Saturday can't be that important. So yeah. I think that's a telltale sign that, you know, they, they, you know, even if you say, what are you doing for the next month? They'll probably turn you down anyway. So maybe yeah. that's telling, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah. No, no, great, great thoughts on that. So in, in terms of sort of um, communication between colleagues in the workplace, do you have any thoughts about how one can improve that or think about the structure? Or is it just always thinking about the conversation racetrack and almost a goal um, and a, a desired result for your conversation? Conversation analysts have a, a principle or if you like an observed thing about conversation over the years that we refer to as recipient design. And that basically means that when people are really effective at talking to each other, we can see them designing their their talk and their writing, their emails and whatever for the person that they're talking to, you know, all sorts of things about who they are and what they know and what they can do and what they're obliged to do and what they're not obliged to do. And you see these really smooth encounters. And that enables us to also see, you know, less effective colleagues at work. You know, my, my favourite examples are actually things in email where you get an email that says something like, what are we going to do about X? And you're on the receiving end of this. And you're like, am I meant to reply? Am I meant to set up a meeting? What am I meant to do? Apart from now worry about what it was that you meant in that email. And I think everyone's probably had that kind of email or can we meet to discuss this, please? Like, Am I meant to set that meeting up? Are you going to set a meeting up? Like, how is that? And you're just left with this kind of this burden of wondering and depending on who they are and who you are, then you might be worrying about it as well. So, thinking about your recipient just much more carefully and especially on something like an email where you can take your time and not just sort of fire it off so and but of course you know depending on the person you can make very very brief requests or you know answers or whatever to people that you know well and when you're in a spate of interaction so it's a matter of realizing and recalibrating and designing for your recipient and where you are in your you know relationship and trajectory and where you are in the day, projects and all those things. Cool. No, that's fantastic. So so really it's just having uh, a think a bit more about who that's intend, in, intended for, yeah. maybe the seniority, um, yeah. are they more senior, more junior, yeah. and what, what's the point, and, and try and make it as clear as possible. Is that is that broadly? Yeah, d- d- just don't leave people dangling. I think one of the things that I've seen across different settings is this leaving people dangling which is really common actually I think in, in conversations so um, an, an example in patient calls to their GP practice their, their GP reception there's, there's, a, there's a really neat difference that you can observe between so let's say I'm, I can see the whole call I've got a transcript so I, I know what's happened in that conversation and let's say the patient's phoned up for an appointment and they have had an appointment made I can see it in the recording but then what happens at the end of the call, the receptionist might move to end the call by saying, OK, then, thank you. And then the patient will have to sort of inter- will have the burden of interrupting and trying to get themselves back in this conversation because there's still something they want to know. And typically what they want is the receptionist. It turns out because they'll say something like, oh, so when should I call back? Uh, oh, so who am I seeing? So when will my results be in? They want confirmation of the next thing that's going to happen in their life. And in some calls the patients have to really push for that information which does forthcome so what you've got is a conversation where the patients had to push for something by sometimes literally over it's sort of interrupting the end of the call to sort of say oh before you go I need to get this confirmation um and then it's the call is longer than it's because but you've got but you've got the same outcome and then the better receptionists are the ones that they don't start to end the call before they have confirmed what's going to happen next in the patient's life. So those receptionists will end by saying something like, so call us on Wednesday. 
and we'll have the results or so your appointment is with x on on this date and then everything is really smooth at the end of the racetrack and this this sort of burden on people to either push for something or be left dangling and wondering what's going to happen next it's the same thing really as those emails where people just aren't maybe just not thinking about what's it like to receive an email that says can we discuss this please it doesn't really matter who you are or what your <laughs> what your seniority is what what's the person on the other end meant to do to, with that yeah, have i done anything wrong yeah yeah <laughs> is my job in jeopardy <laughs> but it but it's it's common and you see yeah, these kinds of things where people are somehow doing the interactional labor um on behalf of both people yeah, yeah i think just making yeah. it make it easy for for the other the party and and just in terms of the say the interview context liz is there anything um from say conversation analysis which could help people maybe in that situation um any thoughts on that do, do you mean job interviews or yeah or? so yeah job interviews yeah, yeah of course hmm. I, I think there is a little bit of research on on job interviews that the names of people who've done that work escape me i think it's actually really important for employers and people who are doing interviews to think really carefully about the questions that they're asking their interviewees i'm going to say i believe firmly i think i believe that we should be much more open about the questions that we're going to ask and not ask you know slightly crazy questions it's a bit like advice for getting to know people at a conference and networking and people are you know it's proposed that you would go and ask a stranger like totally crazy things because that's fun and more interesting than saying oh can I just put my cup down here which is actually much more effective at trying to start a conversation um so I think I think interviewers can can set interviewees up who with 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 crazy questions that in their head just sound fun and interesting and let's see how they deal with this um, so I so I think really the onus is on interviewers to ask really good questions and think, what do we, you know, what what kinds of things do we want to learn about this person? And if thinking on your feet is part of it, okay, may, maybe. But yeah, I, I, I you know, I've I've sat in a lot of interviews and sometimes wondered about the kinds of questions that, that colleagues ask that the interview candidates and and actually whether it'd be much better to just show people the interview questions and let them prepare um, and I know that there is discussion about doing that because in a way why why wouldn't you you, you, you know yeah and, and maybe it would help sort of compare answers and then what people are coming up with yeah I mean and and from the interview um ease perspective I, have, I mean I think I have one tip um which is if you can do your research on who is interviewing you. Oh yeah, totally yeah. Yeah, so I've I've definitely sat on too many interviews where the candidates really orient their answers to one person and kind of ignore, not ignore, but they they haven't they haven't done their research on who else is in the room yeah. and that can be quite awkward. It sounds very basic, but I have like I said I've interviewed lots of people over the years and not doing your research on the department you're joining, the actual, you know, knowing more about the organisation and the people that you're being interviewed by. They, that sounds maybe if that sounds basic and a, and like a, a no brainer to everyone listening, then that's great. But a lot of people don't actually seem to do that very well. <laughs> very good. Um, and one one other thing I, I find interesting is this whole idea of building rapport. Now, um, there's a, a sort of well-known uh, psychologist, uh, uh, Robert Cialdini, who who wrote Influence, and he talks about how um, you know you need to, if you say meet somebody for the first time, you're trying to sort of build rapport through finding commonalities. Um, but but obviously, I think that's not always. You know, it, 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 that doesn't apply to every situation. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? The whole idea of rapport building. I think it can translate into again rather clunky and not recipient designed things that people think they might need to do before they get to the real or you know the reason they're having the conversation. So um, in in work that I've done on cold calls. You can see, and, and actually in, in other areas as well, you can see where the professional party is doing things to build rapport with the, whoever it is that they're, they're interacting with before they get to the business of the call. Um, and, and actually, it, I, I would say that this is a, a little bit the same, even in things like crisis communication, where some of the things that people are doing to build a relationship just aren't what's needed right now in the conversation. And so I like to think of rapport as an outcome of a really good conversation, not something that you do as the foundation to a really good conversation. So you, you can't build rapport first and then have a conversation. You need to have a really well fitted, recipient designed 
conversation and at the end of it then you might feel like you have this rather nebulous thing called rapport okay so 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 say if it's a sales call you really need to think about what, what what am I trying to get uh, uh, out of this conversation? Obviously, think about the recipient. Maybe he or she is busy um, and they don't want to talk about the time. You know, how, yeah. What's the weather like? So exactly. really think about and not just follow a script. Is that? Yeah, I think um, one of my favorite examples actually comes from somebody called to the vet. So people phoning the vet um, did some research on this a few years ago. And um, you're looking at people phoning up to make let's say appointments for injections for new 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 kittens and puppies um and what you see is that some receptionists at the vets will start to you know rather than just so someone if someone phones up and says how much will it cost to get the new you know the new the jabs for my new puppy um they'll start saying oh how old's your puppy and what's he what's he called and will go into all of this kind of like, you know, you're bound to want to talk about your puppy. And some callers really do. So, you know, some people want to talk endlessly to anyone who will listen about their new puppy. But there are other callers who just want to know the price of the service and you can hear it in their total lack of uptake. So, you know, oh, what's your puppy called? Well, you know, they're like, oh, we we don't know yet. It's like this person doesn't want to talk about the puppy. So just give them the price. So it's actually, you know, we, we, Everyone will say listening is important, but actually, again, what you see quite often is that people have decided I'm going to build rapport, whether you like it or not. Um, and we're going to have a conversation about your new puppy, whether you like it or not. And then, of course, those people, what you actually see in these calls is that people may eventually find out the price. And when they're offered, do you want to come and make an appointment? They'll say, oh, you know, maybe I'll think about it. And they're already calling the next the next bet. It's actually listening and thinking, does this person want to talk about their puppy or do they actually just want to know the price and being able to make that distinction is quite important so, so maybe in a sort of a work context if you're trying to sell a project or whatever yeah there are some people who do want to talk about these other things but actually there's some people who just want to get straight down to you okay what's the price what can you do for me yeah. uh what's the advantages so really uh, as you'll say really think about the other person and not just follow a, a pre-planned uh like sales pitch definitely Cool, yeah. fantastic, and and so I, I know we're coming to the end of our uh, time together. Um, so thanks so much for sharing such amazing information, Liz. Um, but quickly about your books, I know I think we've covered uh, a lot of the stuff in terms of the myth busting, the conversation race track. But are there, are there any other sort of high level things that people can get from your two books? Um, so the first book is a is a hopefully an introduction to this field of conversation analysis for people who've never heard of it before, um, mostly for people who aren't academics. It wasn't written for academics. Um, And, you know, there's all sorts of stuff in there about there's a little bit of the science, but also all the things that we've talked about, um, how we think about each other, mostly through what we say to each other, um, the words, individual words that make a difference to the outcome of a conversation. Um, And, you know, there are some sort of tips at the end um, for better conversations. The other book is about crisis communication, and that's co-authored with Rainu Basikbaland and Heidi Kivo Feldman. And that's just come out this summer, and that's the um, result of uh, our shared research on suicide crisis communication. So uh, Heidi's uh, an academic in the US, Rainu is in Norway, and I'm here, and we have together sort of done our research on professional parties, police negotiators and police call uh, takers talking to suicidal people in crisis and what you know of course what the book's about really is what works to enable someone to come down uh, and not and not jump or, or whatever it is that they're threatening to do and the interesting thing about some of the underpinning research for that book is that the things that create the kind of interactional foundations for someone to not jump are actually very similar to the interactional foundations that will get someone to change their stance from one very help, very firm position, whether they're in a neighbour dispute or a workplace dispute or they're not going to buy the thing. But but eventually they're going to change their mind and and do something different. So if you look at the what 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 conversationally is happening, you see some things in common. Cool. And and I like this one point. Uh, you say that if you there are these words, are you willing that that really changes the way um, people will react to a request? Uh, do you want to just quickly explain that? Or if yeah. So so um, I was doing research on people telephoning 
community mediation services and then other types of mediation. And people quite often resist mediation as a solution to a long-standing dispute because, first of all, a lot of people haven't heard of mediation, so they're not really sure what this is. And second of all, they've typically phoned mediation by being referred on from the place they phoned first, the police or the council or, you know, an organisation or an agency that can evict their horrible neighbour or arrest them or whatever it might be. So the idea of getting around the table and sorting it all out through talk might not be that appealing. And so one of the things that I found was that people resist mediation when it's offered to them. But when mediators don't just give up after resistance. So so if, 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 if a mediator says something like, so does mediation sound helpful? Um, and the person says, well, I'm not really sure about, you know, that I don't, I don't really. Quite often what will happen next is the mediator will say, oh, OK, then. Well, you know, I'll send you a leaflet and if you change your mind, get in touch. And that's how calls end. But there was this one mediator who was just some kind of magician. And she said, well, but you'd be willing to just see two of the mediators just to talk about it. And before she said all of the end of that and just got to willing, the caller comes back and says, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the really gorgeous thing about that is that the caller is not only saying yes to mediation, she's also endorsing a type, something about the type of person she is. Are you the kind of person who is willing to do something? And so especially after someone has resisted participating in mediation, being asked if you're willing not only gives you the opportunity to say yes, but also to say I'm the willing type. Yeah. And of course, you know, you're trying to say all the best things about yourself uh, because you are you are the lovely one after all. Um, and so that that gets turnarounds, really strong turnarounds from previous resistance. And so myself and again, Rainu Visikland's found that willing will overcome resistance in other contexts as well. Um, so just be careful where you use it because it's pretty magic. Yeah, and I, I think the point you're making in other talks is that you can't just use it as a blanket thing, but no. potentially that can help as as some magic words to help things along. And it can get things unstuck, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, no, I, I just love that. And it's funny because I was watching one of your talks and you said, I, I'm going to tell you three words, and you never actually mentioned it in that talk. I was thinking, oh, Liz, like, tell me, I want to know. But anyway, I, I found yeah. it in the end. Um, yeah. and, and the last thing is, how, how can people get in touch with you? Because um, I think you're on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, are there any other ways that people, if they want to connect and follow up with you? And Are you happy for that? To yeah, that's fine. Twitter and LinkedIn, and I'm now on Mastodon as well. Yeah, cool. Fantastic. Um, anyway, Liz, thank you so much for taking the time today. I know you have <laughs> a, another uh, call. Um, so, yeah, it's been you know such fun. Loved hearing all your insights. And uh, so when, when do you actually start at the NSC? Is it next After March? Christmas. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, um, yeah well, good luck. Uh, so you'll be in Houghton Street. Is that right? In, is that how to yeah, start? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a Londoner, but I'm sorry. Okay. I need to learn my streets. <laughs> okay, well, g g give me a call if you're, you're getting lost. But thank you so much, Liz. Really appreciate the time. Thank Thanks you so much for inviting me. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers, and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.